This week, rescuing lost memories in mice. When the memory cells are reactivated, then that means memory is retrieved. And weighing up the impacts of China's immense emissions. To be honest, the air pollution is a much more priority than the CO2 emissions in China. Plus, the controversial theory of whether Alzheimer's is transmissible. This is the Nature Podcast for March the seventeenth, twenty sixteen. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm Adam Levy. Researchers in Boston have retrieved forgotten memories lost in the brains of mice with Alzheimer's. Kerry picks up the story with Boston-based interviews by Noah Baker. Forming a memory is a bit like packing a suitcase. Right, so I need my recorder. You put in everything you need for your trip. I need my phone charger. You close it. Oh, passport. Memory works like this. It can be made and then adjusted as it forms. Then, when you remember something, it's like needing your things at your destination. You open the case, and you recall the information. But then, what's happening when we forget? Did we just not pack the case properly, and the contents are missing, left behind, gone forever? Or is it more like losing the key to the case or breaking the zip? The contents are still there, but you just can't access them. This is an interesting question on its own for memory researchers, but it's also key to understanding memory loss in conditions like Alzheimer's or dementia, because if memories are stored but inaccessible, maybe we could unlock them. Here's how memories actually look when they're stored in the brain. They're formed in an area called the hippocampus. To explain more, here's MIT researcher Susumu Tonegawa. If you form a memory in the hippocampus, small population of cells inside the hippocampus fires, and then there will be a chemical, physical changes in those cells, as opposed to other cells. Tonegawa thinks that these cells, which he calls engram cells, are where memories live. And it's this process that can go wrong in disorders like Alzheimer's and dementia. But the ins and outs of how it goes wrong, that hasn't been crystal clear. Here's Chris Butler, who's a specialist in clinical memory deficits at Oxford University. There's been quite a lot of debate over the years about whether it is really a problem with forming those new memories, or that memories are formed normally, but then they are forgotten in an accelerated fashion over subsequent minutes to hours, or potentially whether there's a deficit, a deficit of retrieval of memories. Tonegawa and his team wanted to know whether memories could still be there in the brain, locked away, and it was retrieving them that was the problem. They turned to a mouse model of early Alzheimer's. The brains of these mice look just like the brains of Alzheimer's patients in many ways, and they have memory problems. The team investigated using the technique optogenetics, where cells are labelled with light-sensitive proteins. This is how the study worked: they took each mouse and put it in a box where it would get a mild shock to the foot. Understandably, this is usually memorable to mice. Afterwards, they found the cells in the hippocampus that corresponded to that memory. We insert light-sensitive protein into those cells to label those cells, as opposed to all other cells. With normal mice, returning to the box the next day provokes the memory of the shock. Those same cells fire again. With the Alzheimer's mice, they'd forgotten. 
until Tonegawa and his team pulsed some light at the memory cells they'd labelled the day before. And the next day, you, re- you activate those cells by shining blue light. And uh, by definition, when the memory cells are reactivated, then uh, that means memory is retrieved. The mice behaved just like normal mice. They remembered the shock in the box and froze. Tonegawa's colleague, PhD student Diraj Roy, explains what this means. A major finding was that when animals are amnesic and they don't show a behavioural readout, a lot of us assumed that this memory is gone. We surprisingly found that directly targeting cells, even though animals are amnesic, led to them showing us behaviour. And that was the first evidence that maybe this is the case in even natural disorders. And the first thing that comes to mind when you think of amnesia, I think, is Alzheimer's. And indeed, these mice did have a version of Alzheimer's. But as clinician Chris Butler points out, it's pretty different from the human version. The mice have two specific, quite rare gene mutations that provoke their condition. And they were recalling a fearful memory, whereas for patients, the early memory deficits are much less emotional. Telephone messages that they've received and then forgotten later to pass on to the intended recipient. Items forgotten on shopping trips. All a bit sophisticated for a mouse. There are other limitations to the study too. For instance, you can't bring a memory back forever with just one bolt of light. If you just used one episode of light activation using this blue light stimulation protocol, we found that it does not last. So during this real-time test, we see a nice response, but a day later, it's once again amnesic. I think that's what led us to the second part of the study where we were trying to you know, search for a, a more definitive way to bring these memories back, and that's what led us to looking at these specific connections on engram cells called dendritic spines. A brief technical interlude. Dendritic spines are little branches that neurons reach out to each other with. And learning or remembering something creates extra little branches between cells. So the team thought if we can boost the number of spines using the light stimulation, could that help keep the memory? So after repeatedly trying this, we found a protocol that we could artificially increase dendritic spines of engram cells in early Alzheimer mice. And to our surprise, whenever this was done, several days later, their memory was restored. And this was not only done for a fear memory, but we also confirmed in more neutral context and neutral memories, a similar protocol could be used. Chris Butler is impressed by the nifty experiment and would like to see the memory last even longer. They did seem to show that these types of memories were sustained over six days. But how that translates in, in, in the long term will also be really important. Butler also points out that the stimulation has to be very targeted in order to get the benefit. Stimulating the whole area didn't make the mice remember that memory any better. But he's encouraged that the treatment did rescue memory in these early-stage Alzheimer mice. Treating the earliest stages is something that clinicians are very keen to get better at. Very early Alzheimer's disease, possibly even before people get to our clinics, um, is the uh, most critical stage at which we want to be uh, detecting the disease because not only do we want to be able to tell people and, um, and help them early on, but for trials of new medications uh, in the future, we want to be recruiting people in whom the sort of permanent damage to the brain by the pathology is at as early a stage as possible. For Susumu Tonegawa, one interesting, almost philosophical question is how much information the human brain locks away for a rainy day and just never goes back to. Like packing a case for a trip you never go on. My guess is that uh, overwhelming majority of memory you have, you never use it. And uh, it's there, and uh, you need opportunity. 
to have it retrieved. Susumu Tonegawa and Diraj Roy were interviewed by Noah Baker, who also provided the suitcase sound effects. Find the paper and an associated news and views at nature.com slash nature. Coming up later in the show, Sharmini Bundell investigates the red-hot debate on whether Alzheimer's can be transmitted. But before that, if we're to limit our emissions of carbon dioxide and ease global warming, we need to know where we're starting from. And for the world's biggest emitter, that's not easy. With more, here's Adam. We know that China's been the biggest carbon dioxide emitter for almost a decade, but we also know that there are big uncertainties in China's emissions stats. Last August, a study of China's emissions was published in Nature. It found that China's total emissions over the past two decades were actually about 15% lower than previously thought. Dabo Guan of the University of East Anglia, who led the research, explained that it's really about the quality of coal that China burns. China burns a lot of the low quality of coal. They actually produce less CO2 emissions than, than burn the high quality coal. The 15% revision meant that carbon dioxide equivalent to two years' worth of US emissions was suddenly axed from China's total. So it was something of a surprise when just a few months after, in November, the New York Times published an article stating that China has been burning up to 17% more coal a year than the government previously disclosed. The figure was from a report published by the Chinese government. Emissions 15% down, but now 17% more coal? On the face of it, that sounds like a contradiction. No, there's, there's no contradiction. This is Fergus Green, who's at the London School of Economics. One of them related to the amount of coal used, and the other one related to the type of coal used and the energy content of that coal. And it just so happened that the findings went in different directions. So Dabo's reduction was a result of the quality of coal China burns. But the upward update was about the amount of coal China burns. This second adjustment was in China's official energy data. Last year, China published the results of a huge census of the country's energy consumption. China is massive and has lots of small coal mines that are tricky to account for without errors like double counting. The upward revision came from China more carefully adding up the coal used by its immense energy sector. In fact, it brought China's estimation of its own coal use for energy closer to Dabo's. I called Dabo back to see whether he was worried the public might think these two results were in conflict. As a researcher, I see it as kind of a funny joke, but by the public, they may really believe that. But whatever the public perception, you can bet China's emissions are worth keeping an eye on. Fergus Green says they strongly impact the world's carbon budget, the amount of carbon we have left to burn. Well, the main reason it's important to know this number from a climate perspective is that the world has a limited remaining carbon budget in order to stay below two degrees of global warming. In order to understand the extent of the remaining budget, we need to know how much has been consumed in the past and is being consumed at the moment. And China consumes half the world's coal. So even though last year's revisions don't contradict each other, there's still massive readjustments to the global picture of emissions. Are researchers worried that these big tweaks mean we're clueless about what's happening in China? Fergus Green doesn't think so. 
I think we can be pretty confident about trends in the direction of emissions. We understand what drives emissions. You have a number of different sources that are all pointing in the same direction. We can be confident from that as well as other wider trends that China's coal consumption has fallen. I'm quite optimistic about when China's likely to peak its emissions. I've recently published a paper which argues that China is likely to peak its emissions before 2025. That's five years before they pledged to peak their emissions at the Paris Climate Talks last year. But here's the thing. Carbon dioxide isn't China's main concern. 1.6 million people a year die prematurely from air pollution in China. That's 4,000 people a day. To be honest, the air pollution is a much more priority than the CO2 emissions in China, in many Chinese cities at least. So China should worry about cutting air pollution and then carbon dioxide emissions, right? But there's a problem. Air pollution doesn't just affect human health. It affects the climate, too. Some air pollutants cool the globe, while others warm it up. This week, a study in Nature finds that in spite of huge emissions increases, China's relative contribution to global warming has stayed pretty static at around 10% over the last 20, 30 years. Dominic Spracklin at Leeds University in the UK has written a News and Views piece about this study. He explains that China's relative contribution has stayed constant, in part due to one set of emissions cancelling out another. In China, the warming impacts of carbon dioxide have been offset to some extent by very rapidly increasing sulphate emissions, which scatters uh, radiation back to space very efficiently, um, and that produces quite a strong cooling. That means that China needs to be pretty careful with how it tackles air pollution. So there is a worry um, from a climate standpoint that if you rapidly reduced uh, sulphate emissions, uh, then you could lead to unintended warming. If you were careful, you could mitigate air pollution, so you could reduce air pollution without having a major unintended impact. It's very important that over the next couple of years we really try to make sure we understand the system as well as possible so that we can craft sort of sound air quality policy. So keeping tabs on China's various emissions isn't easy. And working out the right policy decisions to reduce them is even harder. But Dabo Guan reckons that the revisions we saw last year to China's carbon dioxide emissions are big steps in the right direction. Plus, the UK and China are teaming up to get better measurements of Chinese air pollution over the next few years. But Dabo's more worried about another big emitter, India. So I think China is right now doing a, a great example for developing countries. For example, I can see Indian statistics is uh, uh, really a pain, actually. And India may be a future uh, global uh, emission giant in the next 10 or 15 years. That was Dabo Guan. Before him, you heard from Dominic Spracklin and Fergus Green. Dominic's news and views, as well as the paper it's about, are available at nature.com forward slash nature. Fergus's report on China's carbon dioxide emissions is coming out in climate policy in a few weeks, but it's already available to read via the London School of Economics' website. Coming up in the news chat, Russia and the European Space Agency team up to go to Mars, and another big victory for Google's AI programme. That's after the research highlights with Noah Baker. The order of words in a sentence is pretty key to its meaning. 
And for one bird species, the order of notes in a call can get different meanings across. The Japanese great tit uses more than 10 different notes in its calls. In a field test, researchers played recordings of four of these notes in different orders. A series of three notes made the bird look around for predators. Another call meant come over here. Both phrases together in one order made them do both things, but change the order. And they barely responded. This grammar nerd bird is the first experimental evidence of compositional syntax in a wild animal. The study is in Nature Communications. Researchers have come up with a chemical process that turns carbon dioxide and other gases into diesel. The two-stage process relies on two microbes, a bacterium and an engineered yeast. The microbes convert the gases into acetic acid, which is transformed into an oil that can then be turned into diesel using existing industrial methods. The process needs to be made more efficient, but it could one day be used to turn waste gases into usable fuel. You can find the study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Next up, Sharmini Bandel investigates how two different brain conditions could be related. I've been reading a feature written by nature reporter Alison Abbott. It's about Alzheimer's and its potential link to diseases called prion diseases. The focus of the feature is a paper published in Nature last year written by prion disease expert John Collinge, and it provides some evidence supporting this link. But the whole thing has caused quite a significant stir. I called up Alison to find out why. Well, to start with, uh, let's be clear, it's a possible link. And the reason it's sensitive is because nothing is yet proven. But if it were to be proved, it would mean that proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, etc., could perhaps be transmitted from one person to the other by medical procedures. So before we get into that and the whole idea of Alzheimer's being transmissible, we really need to understand prion diseases first. The example most people will have heard of is variant CJD, which is the human form of mad cow disease that you get from eating infected beef. But Alison, what is a prion disease and why are they so weird and unique? Well, prion diseases are weird and unique because the infectious agent is a protein. And it was never very clear how they could be infectious agents because proteins should not reproduce themselves. But in prion diseases, you get a protein that's folded up strangely in the wrong shape. And that can cause other proteins to misfold as well. Yes, that's right. So you might have a protein that's perfectly normal in your cells all of your life, and then at some point it will misfold for whatever reason and stick to other normal proteins and misfold them too. So you get a sort of catastrophic chain of events of misfolded proteins, which are often sticky and stick together, causing terrible problems. Although prion diseases are relatively rare, the idea of dangerous misfolded proteins isn't. One of the features of Alzheimer's disease is sticky clumps of misfolded amyloid beta protein in the brain. If both kinds of disease involve misfolded proteins, you might think that the similarities are obvious. 
but we need some more evidence, particularly if we suspect that the Alzheimer's proteins could be transmissible between people in the same way as prion disease proteins. The first evidence for any kind of transmissibility of Alzheimer's comes from last year's Nature paper, which Alison's feature talks about. One of the authors was John Collins, who is head of the Medical Research Council's Prion Research Unit at UCL. I went to ask him about it, but discovered that Collins didn't actually set out to study Alzheimer's. As you may expect from a prion disease expert, he was investigating a prion disease, specifically CJD. He's been involved in an unusual case where people have been infected with CJD, not from eating beef, but from a medical procedure. Children who had various growth deficiency syndromes um, were treated with growth hormone. And prior to 1985, uh, the only way of getting this growth hormone uh, was by extracting it from the pituitary gland, which is the gland that makes this hormone normally in the body. And large numbers of these glands, thousands of these glands, were pooled together and the hormone was extracted. In 1985, it it was realised that you could actually transmit CJD by this route, presumably because one or more of the glands that had gone into these pools had been from a patient that either had CJD or was developing CJD. The fact that CJD had been passed on by this route was unusual, but not unexpected. We already knew that prion diseases can be infectious. But in the past few years, Colin and his colleagues have been studying the brains of some of the patients who died from CJD after being treated with the growth hormone. And they found something they definitely didn't expect. Several of the brains had clumps of misfolded amyloid beta protein, just like you might see in Alzheimer's brains. But all the CJD patients were far too young for that which made John Collinge suspicious. So where could these misfolded proteins have come from? Collinge's theory is that the human growth hormone the patients had been given as children may have been contaminated not just with CJD prions, but also with tiny seeds of amyloid beta that then started creating clumps in their brain, which could have eventually led to Alzheimer's disease. Now, we don't use cadaver-derived growth hormone anymore, so that's not a danger. But this is the first evidence we've got that Alzheimer's could have been transmitted between people. I asked John Collinge about the implications if this is true. Thankfully, these are rare instances. I think it's important to people understand that we're not saying any of these diseases are contagious. Neither is CJD. You don't catch CJD by being in close contact with somebody, living with husband and wife or as a carer. You can't catch CJD from somebody. You can't catch Alzheimer's disease either. Um, But we know of a number of ways in which um, uh, CJD has been transmitted. Uh, It's not just growth hormone. Uh, there's also certain types of tissue transplantation. Uh, that's led to quite a few cases around the world of, of CJD. Uh, surgical instruments can be contaminated with prions. They stick avidly to some surgical stainless steel and resist normal hospital sterilisation. So there have been a number of cases resulting from contaminated instruments. The question now is, are these relevant to Alzheimer's disease, for example? If it were relevant and Alzheimer's could be transmitted through surgery, for example, that could be hugely significant. But despite the obvious worries, John Collinge was pretty optimistic. I think this really is part of a a number of pieces of work over the past few years that's really leading to a paradigm shift in our understanding of the neurodegenerative diseases. We understand enough about prions and prion propagation to know how to stop it and have been able to stop the process completely in animals. So we're in a, we're in a in a rather more advanced position than research currently is in Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, for example. And there are common mechanisms, and and that might be relevant to finding common ways of preventing these diseases. 
common ways of diagnosing them and ultimately also in treatments that block the propagation of these seeds. That was John Collinge at University College London talking to Sharmini Bandel. And you heard from Alison Abbott, whose article can be found at nature.com forward slash news. John's original paper is also on the Nature site. Finally this week, it's the news chat and Lizzie Gibney joins us. Now, uh, a great start to the week for ExoMars, which launched on the 14th of March. It did. So this is a collaboration between Europe and Russia. And as the name might suggest, it's going to Mars. Uh, So this launched uh, Monday morning and it was quite a complex launch. It took about 10 hours before all the different stages, all the burns happened and it went. Uh, But it's now safely on its way to Mars. So it will be getting there towards the end of the year in October. I believe. It takes a few months and then what will it do once it actually arrives? So the first thing that's going to happen is that the uh, there's a, like a test lander, so demonstration module they call it, which is basically there for Europe to demonstrate that it has the capability to land on Mars because this will be the first time that they've tried to put a lander on Mars other than uh, the British-led but uh, ESA-involved mission uh, Beagle 2, which was unfortunately unsuccessful. Um, so they will have a lander which is going to show that they have that capability and then when it gets there we'll do about between two and maybe four days of science on the surface and it's going to be landing during dust storm season. Kind of it's like a little weather station really. And they'll also have they'll also have the capability to measure the electric fields on Mars which is also something that hasn't been looked at before. And then later the orbiter which will actually only really start its science operations towards the end of next year once it's in this stable circular orbit around Mars. So we're going to look at the gases in the atmosphere, I guess, with the orbiter. And meanwhile, why not land in the middle of an electrified dust storm? Sounds like nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's it's something interesting worth trying, you know. And the thing is, when we go there in the future, maybe if we want to put people on Mars, that might be something that people, we need to do. And in terms of collaboration in these future possibilities, um, this is the first time that ESA and um, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, have worked together. Um, more missions like that to come? Yeah, so this is the first mission where they've worked together really closely. Quite often, people, you know, different agencies will work on each other's probes, like with one instrument or two. But this one is a, a true collaboration. Uh, Russia and Europe have been talking about maybe going to the moon together. And then maybe even a moon base a little further down the line. So this is all uh, this is all kind of prototype to see how that works out. And it's amazing how these kinds of projects can operate almost in a sort of political vacuum. Absolutely. I mean, we we all know of the the kind of international strife there's been over Ukraine at the moment. Um, but Roscosmos and uh, the European Space Agency have weathered that storm, as so frequently as you point out, it does happen in science. Just in terms of the practicalities, uh, obviously we'll wave it off on its way to Mars. That's all well and good. It is though pretty difficult to land these things once you get there, isn't it? The Russians have a long history of not making it to Mars, unfortunately. There were some really sad ones. There was Mars 96, which was a huge project that one of the um, scientists I talked to for my story had worked on for 10 years, and that never made it out of Earth's atmosphere, basically. Um, And then there was another one called Phobos Grunt, which was going to one of Mars's moons, which also failed. But then getting... Getting actually on its way to Mars is not the only problem. Once it's there, it has to land and then it has to communicate once it's landed. So Beagle's problem was that it didn't, wasn't able to open its solar panels um, and its communications mast was under that. So um, that was its problem. Um, but then there were other, lots of other missions. Um, again, some Russian missions which uh, dispatched landers, which then just mysteriously stopped communicating about the time they would have been landing. 
Let's move on to a story that will be familiar to many listeners uh, and readers of the news section. In January, we published a paper by Google company DeepMind, and it was about a new AI, an artificial intelligence that they had been developing called AlphaGo. Just briefly summarise what happened in January and then uh, the, the, the update that we now have. So in January, we heard about this artificial intelligence which had beat the European champion at Go. And the way it does it is pretty nifty because it's relatively general purpose. So rather than being told exactly how to play Go, rather than being programmed with all the rules, it's learned how to do it, which is obviously a much more human way of doing things. So not only is uh, is DeepMind wanting to beat the European champion, but it obviously has wanted to take on the, the world champion, which there isn't quite a specific world champion in Go, but the person that's playing is definitely one of the greatest players of the last 10 years or so. He's an absolute god of the game. And so that's what's been happening in Seoul. The results were in just uh, on Tuesday. The final score was 4-1 to, as you probably know already, the computer. So they did play on. The uh, AlphaGo won the first three games, um, but Lee Sedol pulled back the fourth game and came very, very close apparently in the fifth game. So it wasn't a complete walkover by the machines at all. And it's interesting that there were some weaknesses to the game that AlphaGo played and that it lost one game against Lee Sedol. Um, that wouldn't be something that I guess I would have predicted. Exactly. And I guess um, a lot of people beforehand had predicted, of course, that Lee Sedol would, would win. He himself, early on, said it would be a landslide. So then, obviously, we had the three games where AlphaGo won, which then the world saw it as a walkover. But then, interestingly, in this fourth game, um, where perhaps the pressure was off a little bit because he knew he couldn't win anyway... Lisa Dole played extremely well and perhaps the computer made a few mistakes. And yeah, we saw that it wasn't quite so unbeatable as as we might have thought. Not to belittle its achievements, but all it can do is play Go. And humans can do lots of other things. That is very true. That is very true. You know, you, and you can see that when when uh, Lisa Dole, the, the human player, was there with his with his kid and talking to people, you, you very quickly see that it's much, much more to intelligence than uh, than being able to play Go. But what is interesting about the the way that they've they've made AlphaGo is, as I mentioned earlier, it's quite general purpose and it learns how to play. It doesn't have to be told the rules. So. It has potential for any kind of activity where you have a lot of data, where you're pulling patterns out from it and it has to make decisions based on what it sees and make long-term plans. So there is potential to apply it elsewhere. Obviously, other games. So that's something that we're, I'm sure, deep mind some people within the company, which just keeps growing bigger and bigger, are are working on. There are um, games like multiplayer poker, which hasn't been solved. Um, And another one which keeps coming up is a kind of sci-fi strategy video game called Starcraft. So it might try those, and I'm sure it will do very well. Um, and that will be their grant funding sorted for the next 20 years if they can crack online multiplayer poker. Well, indeed. Good point. <laughs> um, and the, the other thing they'll probably make some money from is if they want to uh, if they want to market the game. Lots of Go players want to now play AlphaGo. So. But beyond that, obviously, it's the real-world challenges that they really, really want to, to be able to tackle. Um, and Demis Hassabis, who's the chief executive of, of DeepMind, has said that particularly within healthcare, for instance, you might have a lot of clinical data or medical images that you might want to analyse in this way and perhaps make decisions about treatment plans or diagnoses based 
on that. And so DeepMind have already partnered with the NHS, the National Health Service here in the UK. Um, so at the moment, they're just helping them out on a few apps, um, which might make doctors' lives easier. But I think this is the direction they ultimately want to go in. OK, thanks, Lizzie. That's all for this week. Next time, out with the new, in with the old. How to build stuff that lasts. But until then, do get in touch to let us know your favourite bits of the show. Drop us an email on podcast at nature.com, tweet at Nature Podcast, or just write a review on iTunes. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.